This episode is supported by Jace Medical. You may or may not know that in December, drug shortages across the U.S. hit a record high. This is causing severe disruptions in medical treatments, resulting in delays, treatment cancellations, and the unfortunate rationing of vital medications. I know that I have heard in the last few months from multiple mom friends of mine, instances where they have not been able to get medications for themselves or for their children in critical crisis moments. This is so, so scary. I know I've had friends with their kids having seasonal flu cold symptoms, struggling to breathe, and they're at urgent care and unable to get the antibiotics that they need because of these shortages. This is scary stuff. Most notably, one of the short supply antibiotics is amoxicillin, which is commonly used for so many of our children's illnesses. So here's where Jace Medical comes in. They have the Jace case, which is a personalized emergency medication kit that contains five essential antibiotics that are used for the most common and deadly bacterial infections. And you can also customize your case and add additional life-saving medications based on your or your children's family's unique needs, like an EpiPen, for example, something that you would never want to be without, would never want to have to run from pharmacy to pharmacy in pursuit of. So if you want to go get these medications and have your antibiotics on supply so that you always have them when you need them in case of an emergency, in case of a disaster, in case of being a, you know, a victim of this drug shortage, Jace Medical will have you covered. All you need to do is go to jacemedical.com and enter the code SHAMELESS at checkout for a discount on your order. That's promo code SHAMELESS at jacemedical, J-A-S-E medical.com, jacemedical.com, code SHAMELESS. This is the Shameless Mom Academy, episode 848. Show notes for this episode, including any links mentioned in the episode, can be found by going to shamelessmom.com and clicking on episode 848. Welcome to the Shameless Mom Academy. I'm your host, Sarah Dean. I'm here to give you and other passionate, driven, unapologetic moms tools, resources, and a little bit of humor to help you lead more positive, powerful, and purposeful lives every damn day. One of the best things about the Shameless Mom Academy is our community, so be sure to join us in our free private Facebook group to connect with other shameless moms just like you. You can find us over at shamelessmom.com forward slash Facebook. All right, let's dive into today's episode. Hello, Shameless Moms. Happy Monday. I'm excited for this one. I know I say that a lot. I get excited though when I start to do research for a certain topic or a topic in an episode and I find things that validate or amplify what I'm already thinking. And so as I was researching for this episode and already excited about talking about inner critic and why our inner critic is so loud, I started to find information that let me go deeper, but also like totally added to what I was already thinking in ways that helped me put different puzzle pieces together. So this is feeling like, this is feeling really fun. And it also reminded me of a situation I had with a client a number of years ago now. So we're going to be talking today about why your inner critic is so loud. And with this, we're going to be talking about socialization and the ways that women are socialized, the ways that moms are socialized. And there's a lot of different layers that come with that. And recognizing like we've been socialized in a system where it's been set up for certain people to be successful and other people's to not. Like our social systems are built in ways that really allow certain groups of people to thrive. And that's not typically women and it's definitely not moms. <laughs> and so when we think about the way that these systems inform us over the course of our lives, we can step back and see things from a really powerful perspective if we can get this bigger picture. And a few years ago, I was working with a client 
we were talking about goals for the year. I was on a call with our membership community. So this was inside the Shameless Mom Academy, our membership community, Momentum Mamas. We're on this call. There was probably like 40 people on the call. We're talking about goal setting for like the next quarter or something for a chunk of time. And one of the people on the call was talking about her goals and she talked about a goal around her health, but it was specifically around weight loss. And I believe she had like a a number related to her weight. Like I want to lose 10 pounds or something like that. And so as we were talking this through, we got into a conversation about diet culture and around women having weight loss goals and around women having weight loss goals that like trump all their other goals. So a woman might want to, you know, go back to school or get a promotion or write a book. But oftentimes there's a goal that's like, I want to lose 10 pounds or 20 pounds or 30 pounds. And that's like the number one goal. And then these other goals that have way more significance in this woman's life and in the world (laughs) are like number two and three. And so we were talking about this and I was kind of pointing out like this is because of diet culture and this is how women are socialized. And when women are socialized this way that like we have been raised and especially if you were raised by a mother but in the like years of 1975 to 1985 which is when I was where like really diet culture was it was having a moment and it's been having a moment ever since then too but it was really having a moment and so what the culture that we were raised in at that time on top of what we saw our moms doing was this obsessive like life obsessed life obsession around bodies and food and how to control it all and eat only so many calories or only certain food groups or only certain amount of this and that and not this and that and all these different and like calorie counting and like these really, really specific ways of going about controlling food in order to manage our bodies. So when we're raised in a system like this, it makes us, the outcomes are that we are then products of diet culture. And we oftentimes perpetuate diet culture because it's what we've seen. It's what we know. It's what's familiar. And we just do it because we haven't seen someone do it differently. And we've seen it done this way with so many people around us. This is like the most common experience around us. We're all seeing it. We're all doing it. And so no one steps back enough to even see like, whoa, this is like weird or limiting or inappropriate or dangerous or what have you. So on this call with this client, we were talking about diet culture and she had never heard the term diet culture. And so in the chat, I see her pop into the chat and she goes, wait, there's a thing called diet culture. So then we start talking about that. Like, here's what it is. Here's how it plays out. Here's what it does for women. Here's how it limits women. Here's how it's like disgusting and dirty. And here's how it's a product of the patriarchy. And she, it was amazing. She was like, I'm so mad right now. And she had this realization that she was a product of a culture that had made her think that she needed to think about her body in a certain way every single day for the rest of her life. And when she had this realization, then she had a breakthrough. And she was like, starting right now, I will never have another weight loss goal. And it was such a big moment because she was able to see, I was thinking this way because of all these influences. And I don't have to think that way. And I will be damned if I'm going to think this way because at some point, some dudes decided that this is how women should think. <laughs> and so it was this huge aha. And all of us watching her learn this and like watching her process this were, it was like a bonding moment because we all have been in those moments, right? Where you like see the thing or understand the thing from a new perspective, or you can step back and see it from a, you know, a, more of a bird's eye view. And then all of a sudden you're like, whoa, now that I see what's happening, like, hell no, we're not doing that anymore. So that's what I'm hoping for for you today. When we talk about inner critic, it's kind of like talking about diet culture. In fact, there's definitely overlap between the two and we'll talk about that a bit. 
But when we think about our inner critic, we have this inner critic voice. And that inner critic voice has all sorts of messages for us. And they're not helpful. (laughs) So our inner critic is like, you're not good enough, or you're not ready enough, or someone else is better, and someone else is more talented. And why would you even bother? And what you just said is stupid. And you can't like, you can never do it the right way. So why even try? And these voices hold us back. And these voices either make us make small decisions, or they make us make no decisions. So we just stay in in action rather than staying in action. When these voices are loud, we don't trust ourselves. We don't see ourselves as capable. We pass on opportunities all the time and we live a smaller life, which can be really, really frustrating in the long run. And it can be really, really exhausting. Listening to these voices and giving them bandwidth can be so exhausting and hugely compromising on our mental health. So let's look at where this all comes from. What I want to talk through is where has this come from? Why do we have this inner critic voice? Why is it so loud? And it's loud for many reasons, which we're going to talk about. And then what can we do with this newfound knowledge? How can we then, many of you are probably going to have this realization, like my client had on that call, like, oh, wait, this is why this happens to me. This is why I think these things like, "Mm, hell no, we're not doing that anymore. So we're going to talk through that part as well. Like, what are we going to do now, now that we're not doing that anymore? Making everyone happy on vacation isn't easy, but you know what is? Going to Aruba. All you have to do is walk out your door to find pristine pools, relaxing white sand beaches, and an island teeming with outdoor activities that'll put a smile on any face. You won't just feel great, you'll all feel great, filled with a calmer, more peaceful vibe that radiates Aruba's warmth. And the best part is, it never fades. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your family trip at aruba.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. So let's talk about the way that women are socialized that allow for the space and the creation of this inner critic and then allow for that voice to just be amplified over and over and over to the point that we elevate it over our own internal knowing around our intuition. So what happens is as this inner critic gets louder and louder and louder, we shut down our self-trust. We shut down our connection to our intuition. That connection to our intuition that says like, I'm really good at this, or I really enjoy this, or I really thrive in this, or I want to say something, or I'm going to go do something. And instead, that intuition that calls us to take action or that allows us to connect with what we're meant to do and how we want to show up in the world gets shut down over and over as that inner critic voice gets louder and louder. So that inner critic voice, as it gets louder, just stifles that connection to our intuition and that own self-trust where we, which would otherwise allow us to stay in action and stay in growth mode and be able to go after what we want without having a second doubt, without comparing ourselves to others and all the things that we typically do. So where does this start? This starts from a really young age. Some of you have heard me talk about self-trust and I have a whole present, a whole training that I do on self-trust in different ways for different groups of women. And I always talk about how young this starts. So this starts from really, really young ages in terms of how women are socialized as little girls. So from a really, really young age, you are told to override preferences. And so this might be preferences around the clothes that you wear or the toys that you play with. It might be preferences or even like needs around safety. So when we think about 
what little girls are expected to do. We're expected to dress to be pleasing to other people. Like wear the cute thing because that's so pretty or wear the the dress that grandma gave you, even if it's itchy because it'll make her happy. We're so told that we're supposed to, you know, play with certain toys, engage in certain pretend play that relates to certain stereotypical roles. And then we're also told to please other people in other ways. So go sit on Uncle Larry's lap or give Cousin Ted a hug. And you're like, oh, I don't know, like Uncle Larry and Cousin Ted, like they're, they're kind of creepy and I don't know them very well. And it makes me feel uncomfortable, but you do it anyways, because you're like, well, I guess that's just what I'm told to do. So I just have to do it. Like you don't know when you're four years old to be like, no, mom, that makes me feel unsafe. So you just go and you do it. So we override our own sense of intuition from that really young age. We are following stereotypes and we're being indoctrinated in different ways around that. Then we really quickly from that young age of really learning to override our own preferences and our own sense of safety sometimes, we go into appearance and body image. So from a really, really young age, we are taught to look certain ways and that certain things are pretty or cute or pleasing and whether it's jewelry and princess dresses or having your body look a certain way or covering your body in certain ways or like making sure that like don't you don't want your tummy to look a certain way and if your tummy's sticking out you need to suck that in and or you hear parents talk about this is my mom's specifically talking about like these are my trouble areas and this is I'm really working on my problem area is my belly or my problem area is my love handles or my muffin top or these stupid names that we give to things so we from this really young age As early as nine and often younger than nine, we are really aware of how our body takes up space in the world, what our body looks like when we're standing next to other bodies. And so that inner critic starts that comparison that so-and-so has a smaller body or so-and-so has prettier dresses or so-and-so has long straight hair or so-and-so has you know, for me, I was a little girl with freckles and I was like, well, no one else has freckles. And so like so-and-so has like this really clear skin. We have all of these ideals that we uphold because we see other people around us upholding them. And we often hear our parents and relatives and caregivers upholding them. So we go into that inner critic voice around like our own body and our own appearance and what it should look like and how we should try to make it look certain ways. And from there, we easily launch into perfectionism. So we have heightened expectations around women's roles from a young age. And this really perpetuates all the way into our adult life and then through our adult life. And so when we look at the socialization of women, especially across the last couple generations, there's been this really great awakening and acknowledgement that you can do anything and you can have it all, which is great in a lot of ways. And also, it hasn't been, you can have it all And also here's some resources to help you. It's more like you can have it all, so you should do it all. So you should be a professional and you should be a good partner and you should be someone who can manage a household and keep it clean and keep it running. And you should also be a primary caregiver and you should also be like the carpool person and you should also be all these different things. So we are constantly trying to live up to the pressure of stepping into all these rules because we can have it all. And so we then are trying to operate at this really, really high level to do it all and to do it all well, because we are told that that's what you're supposed to do, right? You're not supposed to do it halfway. There's no modeling of people doing it halfway. There's no modeling of like, do it to a like C plus level. It's really that we're modeled, like you do it all the way. You get 100%. You do the extra credit and you give, give, give. So part of this perfectionism is overdoing, overproducing, overproving ourselves to prove that we can do it all and be it all and have it all. 
And from there, we go into a lifetime, into lifetime roles of caretaking. And so when we have kids, we're obviously taking on a role of like primary caretaker forever and ever, no matter how old our kids are. And being there for that emotional labor that comes with that, it's not just like making dinner and, you know, making lunches and making sure that the laundry is done. It's a ton of emotional labor. And what I'm finding is the older your children get, the more that is the case. My child is only needing more and more of my emotional labor as he gets to be older. And so that inner critic sets us up for not meeting the needs of all the people who need our care or our emotional labor, all the people who want to lean on us, all the people who want to check in with us. As we step into the sandwich generation, not only are we caretaking for our kids and extending tremendous amounts of emotional labor to maybe kids, partners, and people in the workplace or people in our professional arena, but also to our parents and other aging loved ones. And so we are in these roles of having to be caretaking and really having this, the heaviness of like, you're the person that needs to really show up for these people. They are counting on you. And if it's your kids, you're like, well, I don't want to mess my kids up. And if it's an aging parent or family member, like, well, obviously I feel a huge sense of responsibility to make their final years, you know, what they want them to be. And so our inner critic is like, don't go do your workout, go do something for someone else. Don't go take a nap. You should be like, you know, printing photos to send to your mother, or all sorts of different things, right? So we should be using those caretaking roles at the expense of caretaking ourselves. And our inner critic gets really loud around that, that that's what good people do. And women are often, because of our conditioning around perfectionism, we're often trying endlessly and relentlessly to quote unquote, be good and be seen as being good. It's not even just like being good for self-fulfillment. It's that we also need to be seen as being good. And this is another I was talking with a woman just the other day about how we want to be seen to other people. And we were talking specifically around people that show up for you in crisis. And it's not just that we want to be good people and show actually show up for people in crisis, but we also want to be seen as the people who show up for people in crisis. We want to be seen as the person who jumps up first to say, I got it. I got it. I'm on it. And so that double whammy of trying to be good, but also being noted as being good it's a ton of pressure. With all this, as we're taking this all on, as we're existing in this like hamster wheel of living for other people and to meet other people's needs and to satisfy other people's needs before our own, that inner critic keeps getting louder and louder. And what we're doing is we are perpetuating internalized misogyny. We are taking the same messages that have been given to us that devalue women's abilities and intelligence and worth and we're repeating them to ourselves over and over. We wouldn't say them out loud because many of us know enough to not be misogynistic out loud, right? We're not gonna be like the woman who devalues other women out loud, but in our own heads, we're devaluing ourselves. We're doubting our intelligence. We're doubting that we're good enough. We're doubting that we are as worthy. This internalized misogyny amplifies that inner critic, right? And it amplifies that inner critic and undermines, again, our self-trust. It undermines our connect and really erodes our connection to our intuition, but it also undermines our confidence and our self-esteem. And when we feel crappy about ourselves, we're not going to be action takers and decision makers who go out and change the world or who decide that like, I don't need to change the world today because I really need a nap. And instead, we're going to let those messages just continue to spin and that inner critic gets louder and louder. We also are stuck in double standards and stereotypes, which can be really, really confusing. And so this starts at a really young age as we're especially like moving through puberty and into like high school, college, 
and into rape culture, if I'm being really explicit about this, where we are taught that we should be desirable, but not so much that it makes it dangerous for us. We're taught that we should be like cute and pretty, but not like too sexy. (laughs) And we're always riding these edges and that we never know where the line is. In the workplace, we're taught that we should be assertive, but like not aggressive and not like be loud, be bold, but not too loud. And there's all these places where you're like, you never know where the line is and you never know the line in one room can be different than the line in another room. So there's these double standards where we're, trying to be the thing that we're supposed to be, you know, assertive or bold or what have you. But then also too much of that thing isn't the right thing. And so this double standard leads to so much internal doubt because you're like, okay, I'm turning it up, but like, I don't want to turn it up too much. Like, where does the knob, where's like the place where the knob just sits in the middle? And it's really, really hard to find that spot as we're navigating other people's expectations and stereotypes. Because there's a huge range of what other people would expect. And the stereotypes live on a spectrum. And so some people might be like, yes, be louder, be louder. I want to hear everything you have to say. And then someone sitting next to that person is like, wow, she's kind of loud. It's kind of a lot. Like it's a little much for this situation. So we're always trying to navigate like, okay, I want to be like, I want to make this person impressed, but I don't want to make this person uncomfortable. That's a lot to navigate with that internal voice always like making us check and double check. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. If you're a parent, I invite you to join us at the Mindful Mama podcast, where it's all about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent with sometimes hilarious and always thought-provoking experts and friends. At Mindful Mama, we know that you cannot give what you do not have. And when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm Hunter Clark-Fields, and I can't wait to see you there. Listen in to the Mindful Mama podcast. And then on top of all that, we haven't seen people do the things that we want to do in broad spaces. So cultural narratives around what women can do and how they can do it in a way that gives them the power that they need, not that present. Social media, same thing. Women in leadership positions. There are more women in leadership positions over time, but it's not like it's happening in droves. And when we have women in leadership positions, while they might be forward facing in a really confident way, I will tell you that every leader that I've ever spoken to has an inner critic that is just as loud as any other woman I've ever spoken to. 
And this comes up over and over again when I'm talking, when I'm doing trainings in corporate spaces where women hold certain higher level positions and titles that they've aspired to their whole life. And they finally have the title and they have the in this place of prominence. And still these voices are really, really loud. And they've masked the voices enough to show up in a space and put on this facade that I know what I'm doing. I know that I'm doing it really well. I don't have any doubt. Like I know that this is the next right step. Or I know this is the thing that I can say to this room of people who can, that's going to have impact and that's going to make them listen. And it's going to make them take action. But behind it, you're thinking, also, like my kid was really sad when I dropped them off to school today. And also don't forget to make like stop for these three errands on the way home. And also, also, also like all these other things. And then you're like, well, should I even be doing this job? Like, am I taking away from this precious time that I have with my family? So these voices are just constantly battling in our heads because we haven't seen this representation around here's the person who's been able to go and do it all with the resources that they need and being honest about how hard it is in a way that has shifted the cultural narrative that doesn't exist. And that absence of seeing women in that way then contributes to our own self-doubt and criticism because instead then we think that there's women who have it all figured out because that's what we see. We see like the women who made it all that way, the few of them that have made it that far up the ladder, they have it all figured out and they seem to know the secret. And I don't know where the, what the secret is. I can't seem to crack the code. Like she figured it out, but like, where's the formula for the rest of us? I don't know what the formula is. So I just got to stay here because like she has the formula. I don't have the formula. So I guess I'm just sitting here. And the truth is there is no formula and she doesn't know the formula. Everyone's just figuring out as they go. And everyone's carrying a lot of self-doubt and a lot of inner critic with them as they go. So when we can recognize all that, we can start to sit with, wow, like that's where I'm coming from. Because ultimately what we've been doing is we've been gaslighting ourselves. We've been gaslighting and invalidating our own experiences. So gaslighting is, a, by definition, a form of psychological manipulation that undermines a person's perspective of reality. And it's used as a patriarchal tool. So this goes hand in hand with this internalized misogyny that we gaslight ourselves into thinking that we're not enough. We gaslight ourselves into thinking, well, I'm not ready because this person has more credentials or more qualifications. Or we gaslight ourselves into thinking like, I'm not qualified because XYZ happened to me and I don't have a great understanding of this thing. I'm not ready for this thing because I have to go do these other three things first. I'm not ready to you know, go for this job or I'm not ready to go start my own business because I haven't done this and I haven't done that. I can't start a business. I don't have an MBA. Like we gaslight ourselves out of all of these things because this is the gaslighting that we've had socially and as a society of women. And so we do it to ourselves and we don't recognize we're doing it. I know that when I feel like I'm being gaslit by someone, when someone's trying to tell me that my experience isn't valid, it fills me with a special kind of rage. And yet, when we think about how we gaslight ourselves because of our social conditioning, it's really easy to dismiss and be like, oh, well, no, I don't really do that. But the truth is you do. My greatest example of gaslighting is a conversation that I've had many times with my husband about being hot or cold, but it's often more around being, well, it's around both, I guess. So what happens is we'll be in the car and I will turn on the seat warmer in my in my current car, I have a steering wheel warmer. I will turn the heat up. I want it to be like 87 degrees in my car and slightly humid because often I'm coming out of my house or the outside where it's cold. And so I'm just like, all the heat, bring it on. I also want to be wearing like my biggest puffy coat while I have these conditions happening. My husband, in contrast, is like maybe wearing like a t-shirt and or a button down. And he's sitting in the car with no seat warmer on, no heated steering wheel. He turns down the air control on his side to be like, instead of the 85 I have blowing on my side, he's like, I'm going to turn this down to like 62. And then 
I'm like, no, I'm still cold. And he's like, there's no way that you're cold. You can't tell, like, that is my experience. If I'm cold, I'm cold. I'm not lying. Like, I don't have anything to gain by lying about it. That's just my experience. And so there's been times where I'm like, don't tell me if what I'm feeling. Don't tell me if I'm cold or not. Like, I know if I'm cold or same if I'm hot. Like, don't tell me if I'm hot or not. When we think about, that's a, a silly example or a really light example, but when we think about how often we think something or experience something, and then we either shut it down before we ever say it out loud, or we say it out loud and then we want to take it back because we're so used to having someone say, well, no, it's not really like that. And this happens all the times in meetings where we say something, and it can be in a community meeting, a PTA meeting, a meeting with a teacher, a meeting with a boss, where you say something and then someone counters with something and you assume that they're right versus saying, no, like that's not my experience and that's not what I meant or that's not what I'm saying. That's not the correct thing in this moment. We have to catch those things though and it can be really tricky to catch those things and it causes doubt. So what we often do is we receive whatever we're given. We say something, someone else counters it with something that we're like, I feel like that's wrong or I feel like they didn't hear me. But instead of saying something, we just say, okay, and we walk away. And then later we may or may not re revisit it internally and think like, no, like that was super screwed up. Like that they didn't hear me. They didn't listen. They didn't ask me a follow-up question to understand what I was saying. They made an assumption off of what I said. They ran with it. They made the wrong assumption. And now, no, I'm not going to get what I need or what I want. And then you have to make this big decision. Like, do I go to the emotional labor to readdress it again? Or do I just let it be? And that's really, really tricky. And I've had that in, in advocating for myself. I've also had it in advocating for my kid and like speaking up and saying something to someone in a school environment and saying like, hey, like this is happening and this is happening. And having them either like partially listen or be dismissive or say they're going to come back to it, but they don't. And always with the best of intentions, like I don't think that people in school systems are ever trying to not listen. I think that they are just often having to listen to a lot of parents with a lot of things to say, but it can feel like, okay, like maybe I should just let it go this time. So that inner critic creeps up, like who are you to make a big deal? Or someone else has a bigger problem, let them, like they need to address the bigger problems. This is just a little thing. So that own the gaslighting that we get externally that then turns into the gaslighting that we inflict on ourselves internally massively contributes to that inner critic. So what do we do with all this? What do we do with that inner critic that keeps us quiet and small and fearful and frustrated? Oftentimes that inner critic has been with you for so long that you don't even recognize that that's your default voice, that you don't catch that inner critic mid-sentence to be like, no, sit down, shut up. You don't get to talk right now. That's the loudest voice in your head. And she's inhibiting your decision-making and your action-taking. She's telling you that you're not worthy, capable, qualified, or ready to do the things or say the things that you want to do or say. She's stolen your voice and stunted your growth as a woman and as a leader in the world. So how can we work through this so that you can shut down that inner critic and then elevate your voices that are confident and elevate and what we call it when I'm teaching my step into your moxie curriculum when I'm doing trainings and leadership trainings and trainings for women in different spaces, we talk about elevating your inner coach. Like how can you get that coach voice to be the coach, the voice that's like, hey, wait, like you got this. And what you just, that thought that you just had, like that's not a true thought or it's an incomplete thought at best. Like it's incomplete because there's other things true there that you're not seeing. So the first thing that you can start to do is commit to learning about why you think the way that you think. Why do you have these messages in your head? Why are there certain things that you say on repeat? And this might be things about your work performance. It might be things about the way you parent. It might be things about the way you engage with your partner. It might be things about like what you say to yourself when you're looking in the mirror and getting dressed every morning. 
Commit to learning about why you think the way that you think. It's typically because of the way you've been socialized, but also because of your upbringing and also past experiences. And then get curious. Get curious about that socialization. Get curious about what you have been through that has let this voice get louder and louder. Literally like listen to what I just said over the first 28 minutes of this episode and go through like line by line. Here's the things that I had to shut down growing up. Here's the way that I wasn't allowed to dress the way I wanted to or had to play with these toys or had to please other relatives. Here's how I started thinking about my body at a really young age and how that impacted me. Walk through all of the different phases that I just walked you through and get curious about like, oh, that came from this and that came from that. And I accepted it as true when it's not true. And then from there, you can challenge your assumptions and your biases. And when you can challenge your assumptions and your biases, then you can be like, oh, wait, like I don't have to always have a weight loss goal. I don't have to think this way. And you can recognize that own pattern of gaslighting yourself. And so the next step being like recognizing that and recognizing like, wow, every time I say this to myself, every time I say you're not ready or you're not good enough or someone else is better than you, you're gaslighting yourself. You're internalizing your own misogyny. And then also recognizing how you see this at play in other places. And so something that I think can be super helpful, and you can choose whether or not you want to call it out, but you can start to see how other women around you do this. When we see people do things around us, we often can think, oh, wow, I don't want to be that way. Now you can decide if you want to go to that person and say like, hey, I don't know if you recognize that you just said that thing. And that might have been your inner critic thinking. And I just want to give you like another perspective. I think you're really good at this thing. And your inner critic might be saying that you're not good at this thing. And I just wanted to let you know, like, I think that you actually are really great at this thing. So you can decide like how or if you want to address other people's inner critic work for them. That might not be something other people are open to. But recognizing how it plays out for other people can allow you then to learn to deal with your inner critic in a different way and have different conversations with your inner critic. This was a big one for me as I was rectifying stuff in diet culture. And I recognized how often I would go to dinner with friends and they would sit down at the table and start ordering off the menu and say, I'm going to be really bad today. I'm going to get the pasta. And I was like, oh my gosh, I used to say things like that. Like, I hate that so much. I will never say anything like that again. So it's recognizing how other people's inner critic plays out and then saying like, oh, I'm not okay with that for me. And then if you want to call out the other person or, and call them in, I should say, and like invite them into a conversation about that or point out what you're noticing, that's a different level that you can take on a case-by-case basis. But just looking at how you manage this yourself, how you work through this yourself and how you grow so that you can challenge that inner critic and say, no, 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 no. Like you're not the one that gets to take up space right now. And instead you're inviting in the truth in all of its layers and elevating the voices that allow you to stand in your gifts and your strengths and your talents, that allow you to go for what you want, that allow you to recognize that you are worthy and capable and qualified, even if you're not going to go get 100% on the thing. Like you are capable and qualified to go do something to a C level, a C plus, a C minus. You're allowed to go and totally bomb. You're allowed to go try something and be horrible at it. But you have to be able to override that inner critic in order to give yourself permission to do that. So I hope this was helpful. I hope you learned a lot. Honestly, I already said it once, but like go back and listen again if it's helpful for you to sit through each of these examples one by one and recognize how this has happened to you over the course of your life, how this inner critic has been amplified and gotten so loud so that then you can start to counter it with other healthier voices. I'm so happy that we got to spend this time together. And please remember that I'm in this with you always. Thank you so much for joining me in the Shameless Mom Academy today. I really, really appreciate you being here and I hope you learned something new. As always, this conversation will be continued 
over in our free private Facebook group. You can join that group by going to shamelessmom.com forward slash Facebook to connect with other shameless moms just like you. Additionally, if this is your first time listening to the show, know that we are here every Monday and Wednesday with a brand new episode. So make sure you subscribe, go to whatever podcast app you use and subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode. You can do that directly if you go to shamelessmom.com forward slash review that will put you in Apple Podcasts where you can click on the subscribe button and you can also leave a review. If you scroll down a little bit, you can leave a five-star review. You can write a few sentences letting me know what you thought about the show. If you let me know how the show has impacted you in becoming a more shameless mom, you might be nominated to be shameless mom of the week. Also, please share this episode. My goal is to help more mamas be more shameless every damn day. So please do share this episode. You can take a screenshot of the episode on your phone and then share it out on social media. Tag me at the Shameless Mom Academy on Facebook or Instagram. I'm quick to reply and eager to send you Facebook love and love to be connected to all of you. So again, thank you for being here. I can't wait to be back here again with you in just a couple days. And until then, no matter what you do today, make sure you do it shamelessly. It's us, Blair and Molly, your old pals from Toddler Purgatory. Two moms who are also actors, who are also creative beings, who sometimes feel stuck. And this is our new podcast, Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. What happens when your creative spark just seems to disappear? Gone. Poof. Bye. See ya. What happens when life gets in the way of your creativity instead of nourishing it? That's what happened to Molly and me. We felt like the thing that drove us creatively stopped working and impending doom had in fact impended. Totally. So we decided to do something about it. And that was steal ideas about getting unstuck from the most creative people we can find. We talked to guests about how to break through the mucky, gluey, sticky wall that can get between you and your creativity. We hear about their journeys, their successes, their challenges, and even their bougie coffee shop orders. And we're not just talking Bob Ross type paint on paper artists here, though we talk to them too. We're talking to actors, creative directors, dancers, and people who are working hard to be their best creative selves in a world that can sometimes feel real uncreative. We all have something to teach each other, so let's steal their ideas together. Join us, won't you, as we deep dive into how to unstick ourselves from the life gunk that can get in the way of our creative freedom. Pandemics, school calendars, world events, lack of sleep, oh, get out of their life gunk. And let's get back to your best creative self. Subscribe to Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. You're not going to want to miss an episode. Unsticking It with Blair and Molly, because sometimes life sucks. Unstick-